Hello and welcome to Music Rewind, a podcast where we look to tell the stories behind our favorite albums. I'm your host, Steve Epley, and in each episode, we invite a guest on to tell us about their favorite music album, how they discovered it, and what makes it special to them. Joining me today is a Music Rewind regular who needs no introduction, Danny Prokop. You will find Danny on previous episodes, Diary by Sunny Day Real Estate and the 90s Music Roundtable. He's also a frequent guest on our live streams. Welcome, Danny, and thank you for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me back, Steve. Really excited about it. I've been listening and following up on season two episodes and stuff. A lot of good things happening. I'm excited to be part of season three. Awesome. All right. Well, let's uh, jump right into this. What album did you bring to the table and how did you discover? Today, Steve, I'm going to try to tackle Nirvana's Nevermind. The way I discovered it, I think like everyone else, it just became part of the zeitgeist around 91. Um, and I originally think I saw much like half the population. I originally saw the Smells Like Teen Spirit video on MTV in rotation. And uh, it just spoke to me. And it, it made me intrigued and want to dive in and find more and more about it, more and more about the record, more and more about the guys behind the band and, and the band and dive into it and uh, sink my teeth into it. I, I have a confession to make. I had not listened to this album all the way through until preparing for it ever in your life, ever until preparing for this episode. Why? Let's get into this. <laughs> I, I have owned it for many years, but I never just put it on and listened all the way through. And the back half, a lot of it was new to me. Well, let's talk about that. Let's flip the script on this episode. Because <laughs> those uh, are some of the strong, to me, those are, we'll get into it, obviously, but I don't know whether it's just because of the other the first half of the record was pretty much, you know, radio and MTV staples, but the back half of the record, I think, is some of their strongest songs. Well, when, like you said, in uh, 91, uh, that was right about the time that I got MTV for the first time. So that was, was that, that, that video and, you know, along with Jeremy and others were always, always on there uh, from, from all that, that, that new music that was just slamming me in the head from, from many different directions. And I didn't zero in on, on much until the pumpkins. I kind of passed over Nirvana at that time. Yeah. Uh, so it wasn't until later on that, because I, I, I kind of thought that, well, there it just smells like Teen Spirit, and then a couple others, and it's not really my thing. And then I really was not a big fan of uh, In Utero. That that one didn't click with me at all, so I never really really went back and gave it the time that it deserved. Gotcha. I think for me it was because I I kind of had to go back and reassess how I found the album and and put myself in the shoes I was then when I first heard it, rather than you know what it is now. And I think for me, it, like I had older cousins and, you know, you talk to Rick, whose episode is fantastic, the, the, the puppets episode, but, you know, f through him found bands like the Smiths and television and those earlier Metallica records. But at the same time, like Metallica, the one video was on Headbangers Ball. I had older cousins who were in this sort of the, the metal scene at the time. So they got me into watching like Headbangers Ball and stuff like that. And I think, honestly, that's the first place I saw the Smells Like Teen Spirit video was Headbangers Ball. And, you know, people forget at the time where that's where, quote unquote, heavy music was. Yeah. And he was still Bill Jackson, Donna, sort of, you know, this is early 90s. Smells Like Teen Spirit comes out in September, you know, so it, of 91. So it's, it's early. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, again, I think it was visually the way the three of those guys were dressed you know this wasn't the it's cliche now and it's every talking point you've ever heard about it but at the time it you know it's jeans and t-shirts it's some of those bands like i was being exposed to like the television and the smith some of those bands that look like that but living in a small town like we did there's no college radio mm -hmm. there's no i don't know at this point you know, really who the replacements are or anyone like that, Husker Du, any of that underground 
alternative rock, college rock at the time. So seeing these guys, there was just something about it. And it was heavy, but it was also melodic. And I think that's what drew me into Nirvana at first. And then sort of, you know, seemingly, not even seemingly. I mean, the record comes out in September. And by January, it's number one on the Billboard charts. And then everything else follows. So for, you know, especially at such a young age, not knowing the background of alternative or college rock, it was overnight where all of this music came out and everyone's either into it or against it but it's you know everyone's aware of and knows nirvana and the music that follows but i i think for me what i what i was you know i was sort of hesitant and i have to be honest hesitant about bringing this record in is be, not because i don't love it i mean it's it's a cornerstone record for me but it's what else can you say about it? It's almost like saying your favorite band's The Beatles, where it's so, it means so much, but it's almost so like, uh, I don't want to say generic, but it becomes something bigger than it is, right? So I, what I want to try to do is go back to, to strip all that away, to strip the mythology about it, the, the Kurt Cobain t-shirts and the, the bigger than the Beatles. And, the, you know, now you can buy your Nirvana shirts at Target and whatever, and you could for years and Nirvana, you know, the statues and the myth and just go back to when this record was made, what it meant and try to capture that, what it meant to me at that time. All right. Well, why don't you walk me through how you listen to the album and we'll, we'll tackle it that way. You know, honestly, now it's one of those ones where we were talking about before is usually I skip to the back half just because I haven't heard those songs in forever. Um, going back and preparing for this episode, I've been listening to it all the way through. And if it comes up, it's all the way through. It's not something I'll sit down and go, oh, I've got to listen to this just because it brings up so much for me. It, it's a heavy listen. It's not something I have on in the background. Uh, on, on that note, I mean, that's kind of what I ended up doing. Too. I mean, because the first uh, you know, five, six tracks are no. I mean, they're, that's, those, those are the, the hits, and there's the, the ones that I know, just not even listening to the album all the way through, I know those songs, I, even the lyrics. It's just, hell, you know, In Bloom was on Rock Band. Yeah. But then, but from track seven on, those were the ones that were kind of new to me. And, and I, so whenever I would put it on to prepare for this, I would skip straight to seven and then listen to the back end. I think for me too, is it's, you know, I think it's like anybody with their favorite record or records, it's the relationship with it. It, uh, it changes, it ebbs and flows It mutates, it grows, it contracts. It, it's everything that, a, a you know, to us music nerds, it's everything that a real relationship is, right? It's, it's the record that meant this to you then. It means something else now. This song does this, this song does that. So I've had to reevaluate my relationship with this record numerous times over the years. And I, you know, I was so young when it first came out and it spoke to me, but then, then I think the whole world went back and re-examined and over a fine tooth comb went through the lyrics and, oh my God, were there, you know, Cobain was telling us this whole time that he was, you know, that this was there and he's, the, there's that whole mythology of he's the tortured artist and, uh, the, uh, you know, there's that whole thing to unpack of, you know, he's just this depressed if you look at these lyrics in retrospect, there's definitely, you know, you could connect dots, whether they're real or not. Well, and that's something I want to talk about too, um, through this and I know we'll get into it, but yeah. So then I had to do that. And then growing up, I mean, you know, we're almost 20 years older than Cobain at this point, you know, yeah, <laughs> ever was. So then you're going through all of those things. And now I'm at the point where they're just, they mean a lot to me, but they're, I'm seeing them, you know, and I have for the last, you know, however many years, but seeing them again as what they are, they're just great. I think what sets Nirvana apart from a lot of, you know, bands and why they resonate so much is because they were attacking this music. It's heavy, but the melodies are there. You know, I think what separates them and the, the whole looking back on it and grunge and all that kind of stuff where, um, you know, bands like Soundgarden and, and Alice in Chains, those bands have more in common with Black Sabbath, where Nirvana has really, to me, has more in common with like Cheap Trick. I can see that. The bass is turned up. There's a quiet loud. There, there's a lot of the similarities and the heaviness and, you know, 
but to me that i think that's what drew me to them more so to those other bands at the time and now believe me you know my love of pearl jam and Soundgarden and those bands goes beyond but i think what sets nirvana apart for me is sort of that melody in the songwriting and that all really comes down to cobain but just the way it gelled together and what the underlying eth but going through the lyrics especially and and you were talking about the tortured soul but what people forget and you know what i'd like to talk about is the fact that it's just funny a lot of it is funny he's just a humorous guy and i think a a lot of people miss that because the tragic ending and then you know you're looking for meaning and then you know however many then you're reading somebody else's account about it if you're going back and reading these books when the, the ending is known instead of seeing about it you know what it was i don't know if they took themselves as seriously as the rest of us do in terms of especially now with it you know 30 years 32 years of hindsight 31 years of hindsight on, on this record so yeah i think a lot of the lyrics when you're not trying to connect the imaginary dots like you said because you know the ending they can be taken as completely tongue-in-cheek oh. where just e- e- either they're they're meaningless just because they sound good in the in the moment or or he's trying to he's doing the paul mccartney just writing about what's around him in a 360 view and putting it to some hard music and it's just for the fun of it without a doubt i think a lot of it was that too i mean it's not funny you 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 know the voice of a generation and all that kind of stuff but then you read and i know we'll go track by track and what one of my favorite songs is for like humor is like on a plane it really it starts off and I'll start this off without any words. And then he's at the end and you're reading like the accounts of it later is that it was the last one of the last songs that he was writing and they were running out of time, you know, in the recording session. But the last verse is really one more special, mes- one more special message to go. Then I'm done and I can go home. And you're like, yeah, that's a 24 year old kid. You know, <laughs> on a deadline. <laughs> but it's fun, you know, it's, it's just and they're sprinkled throughout um, those kind of things that, you know, those those lyrics and stuff. But I think just seeing it as a. Uh, as a whole, and I, I think the the mythology has enveloped the band, you know, rightfully, wrongfully so. That's a debate for the countless volumes that people have written and, and talked about ad nauseum. But it's just, it's interesting to know if you put yourself into when this album, who this band was when this album was recorded and how it was recorded. It, I, I think to me, brings a whole new meaning onto what comes after it, if that makes sense. No, I agree with that. So I think you got to think at the time too. I mean, so 88, they have um, Bleach, their first record. And it gets some play in the underground, especially their their cover of um, Shocking Blue's Love Buzz. And, you know, they're big, relatively speaking, in Europe and all that kind of stuff. There's bidding wars and people can find out the history of the band. But when these guys get together, it's not Nirvana, you know, in quotes and big blocks recording their follow-up record this isn't the beatles making revolver you know or or sergeant peppers where there's this smoke and this heat for years i thought this was their first album a lot of people still do to be honest with you um but not only that the whole shift this isn't like oh they're putting this record out for for the masses that are prepared to that are already listening to this type of music Thriller, you know, uh, Michael Jackson's at the top of the charts. Garth Brooks is is coming. Like we talked about all the pop stuff. Yeah. This music is out there. And and I think that's, you know, a lot of especially the the older generation, the older folks in our generation, you know, often say, well, Nirvana was just they sound like the Pixies or they they're doing this, they're doing that. And they they've completely owned up to that. You know, they weren't reinventing the wheel, but I think in the way that they did it, um, brought it to that next level. But I, I think at the time, this is, they just get a new drummer. So Chad Channing, who is the drummer on Bleach, is gone. They get Dave Grohl, who is in 
you know, DC hardcore band Scream. They go into Sun Studios. Their last record was made for, you know, $700. They get a big time producer. There's money, quote unquote, behind it. But again, it's not this big alternative rock record because that term didn't even exist yet. Was Bleach released on Sub Pop as well? Bleach is Sub Pop. And then after that, this is when um, there's a bidding war. They get new management. Um, I think Gold Mountain is the management company that they signed with. All nerdy, weird, into the weeds stuff. But uh, then they they sign with, or Sub Pop essentially signs with Geffen or a deal with Geffen, which, you know, famously saves the company the influx of cash. But that was mostly on DGC at the time. We put out, they had just put out Sonic Use Goo which was a pretty good record. Like they had a pretty good roster of, of, you know, for lack of a better term, alternative bands at the time. But again, I don't, this record, if anything, was probably supposed to sell half the records Sonic Youth maybe, or, or be popular in that the same way. Mm -hmm. A hard, um, earnest fan base, a fervent fan base, I should say that, that, sought out this type of music but i don't think anybody you know even as good as these songs are are thinking well in three years there's going to be you know flannel fashion shows and a winning grammys and then on the cover of time magazine and and all of those sorts of things it just it just doesn't happen this is a band again new drummer new something they're making these sets of songs and i think it was you know if you take the mythology and again the the ending out of it and what it's grown to become bigger than of itself. And just take a look at what this record is. I think, um, again, it's just mind blowing. It still is mind blowing to think about where this could be or what it turned into, I should say. Well, yeah. I mean, the mainstream rock that preceded it on say MTV and others was, you know, things like unskinny bop from poison still in spandex and running around on stage. And then this was completely different. And it was, it was jarring in, in a good way, in a good way. Because those other bands you mentioned, they weren't getting any MTV airtime. Exactly. And I think it's, you know, it's Nirvana is, you know, crowned the death of hair metal and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, if you look at it, I think it's, that's a bow to put on it. And it's, it's a nice um, way just to end it and, and move on and say, well, grunge killed hair metal and now we're moving on. I, I think, you know, just like in real life, in any era, it w- there was overlap and it was messy, but that kind of music was already dying in and of itself because you get those bands at the tail end, just like any, just like at the end of the grunge scene, those bands that have no connection to the original, the original Sunset Strip in terms yeah. of hair metal or, or the grunge underground of, you know, the kind of punk and what have you underground of that grunge had. So the music's already lacking. People are moving on, but they're hungry for something new. And then you've got these guys that are, you know, especially like grunge and, and like Soundgarden and Alice in Chains and the Pearl Jam guys. Those guys were all like in some of those bands. You know, Mother Love Bone is a glam rock band. Yeah. You know, um, Duff McKagan is in punk bands and he's also in GNR and, and Appetite for Destruction is could be of you know i don't necessarily think that's a hair metal record by any stretch of the imagination so a lot of influence and mix and i think that's what always that's the neat boat too that i think that a lot of people put on is that well nirvana's grunge and they're from seattle but they're not they're from outside of it they're from aberdeen you know they weren't really they weren't rubbing elbows with cornell and and vetter and um those guys they played you know sub pop and Lanigan and Screaming Trees and Tad and Mud Honey and those sorts of bands and there's overlap you know Mark Arm and, and Mud Honey they played with the guys um, in Green River with Amet and those guys but I think Nirvana just set, is is set off a little bit to the side enough where they weren't necessarily as influenced by those bands as some of the others were if that makes sense yeah you know um, Cobain famously would hang around like the Melvins practice space. They're doing their weird sort of heavy things, but there there's also melody in there. Um, and I think, you know, Cobain's love of the Beatles and and AM radio and Cheap Trick sort of comes through in 
in this songwriting in a way that doesn't necessarily come through in other grunge records. And there was one track on here that had, he was spouting the lyrics to the Youngbloods at the beginning. Get together right now. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's yeah, I mean, that was that was a thrill that I wasn't expecting. Well, and that's uh, Nova Selic, the bass player, singing. So that's his. Oh, is it? Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, that's territorial pissings, which you know, if you're going to start a song with, "Come on, people, now smile on your yeah. brother." <laughs> you know, again, I I think that's an example of he's singing that, and he's he's singing it poorly. You know, Nova Selich, I don't know if he was singing in an earnest or he's just that good of a singer, but uh, it's sort of that "Come on, people, now smile on your brother." Get together right now, and then the lyrics are all about I got to get away. Got to find a way, a better way. You know, the death of the older sort of generation, the, the boomer parents, and, you know, we're still doing the same thing we're doing now, but just that whole idea of you got to find a way, a better way. Um, right. And then he's got that awesome, that iconic lyric in there to me, um, which speaks, you know, I've never met a wise man. If so, it's a woman. And I think lyrics like that really go into sort of, I think why Nirvana broke a lot bigger and why there was something there is it spoke to everybody. It wasn't homophobic. It wasn't misogynist. They were talking about, you know, Cobain wears the dress on headbangers ball and everybody's up in arms. <laughs> um, you know, he wears the ball gown famously. I thought it was a ball. It's but I, I think that's why Nirvana did it in such a way is because, you know, for better or for worse. And I know for a lot of people, um, especially, like I said, a few years older where they were, you have sort of this insular tribe. And he says, you know, Cobain talks about the tribe and smells like teen spirit, but you've got this insular tribe and you're fighting. And, you know, wouldn't it be great if we all were on the same page? Well, then it gets, you know, mass marketed and commodified and all of a sudden you're small little world and your your tribe is is now like i said a fashion show and all that sort of stuff and you know it has a tragic ending but i think for a, a minute there was just that sort of um you know and this is me looking back on it and reading things like i said from from those folks that were in their 20s at the time and and had been a part of that underground scene to see one of their quote-unquote own make it huge I think there was that sense of sort of the underground has won. Things are really going to change. And I think that was a moment of that generation, that Gen X, you know, our generation that we're at the tail end of. Okay, now that we're in charge, we're going to change everything. I think every generation has that, right? Until, you know, the machine keeps rolling. But I think for a minute there, there really probably was that feeling of, you know, we won. We're in charge. The outcasts are now in charge. Illusion. Yeah. The illusion of it. Absolutely. It's just, like I said, it's the same as any other generation, right? We, every generation is fighting against the older generation. And once we get in charge, this is going to change. And, you know, not a lot does for better or for worse. I, I do wonder if, if this album would have taken off the way it did, if MTV was not a thing, you know, what, what would, how the music scene would have progressed through the 90s if if this was not you know right there right at the beginning right as mtv was uh in full stride yeah that's a good question um i i think just because the nature of the world at the time mtv was the way the masses received their music or found out you know this is still they're only 10 years in mtv at this time and they're telling you what's cool right um, mm -hmm. there's the daytime videos and all that kind of stuff. And then there's, there's headbangers ball for, to document the sunset strip and heavier music at the time. Um, but there's really no other way. Like how else would you hear about it in spring Valley? And that's what made me think of it. Because say we come from a very 
rural area and we only had you know two three decent stations that were playing either classic rock golden oldies or the the pop 40 and this stuff if it wasn't being broadcast on our tvs we probably wouldn't have heard it. no without a doubt just because we didn't get chicago radio stations at the no and quite honestly what i think was great you would ha- get your i would peruse the the rock magazines at the grocery store when my mom was shopping you know your i think it was like hit parader and circus and all those kind of stuff and at the beginning nirvana's in there with bands like skid row and poise oh, yeah. they're on the cover or sharing covers and because what there is no i think that's what especially you know for younger folks and younger listeners there is no alternative it doesn't exist this is just a rock record this is just a heavy record this is going this is on headbangers ball this is on those stations with um you know i i agree i mean i hear all the term alternative rock i'm thinking experimental almost progressive rock like something that's out of the I'm, I'm saying this poorly, but out of the ordinary. Whereas this was a good rock record. Yeah. Well, and that's really, you know, T- you- 10 was a good rock record. They, they, these weren't alternative to me. Well, and at the time, I, you know, I could be misquoting. I think at the time it was alternative to the mainstream, was what there, there you go. alternative yeah. meant. Um, and then the, the irony is that it became the mainstream, you know, and, and still, you know, like I said, for better or for worse, this shaped a lot of what came after it and obviously it ends you know at least for nirvana ends in a way that you know ends quickly unfortunately to to say it you know to again and i think a record like that doesn't happen it's one of those things where you can tell when a band is being forced on you or when somebody says this is going to be the next big thing and then it goes away um i think this this record and took everyone by surprise that worked on it just in terms of they might have thought it would be a success but not as big as it was i don't think anyone could have predicted that all of a sudden you're going to have this type of music take over the billboard charts and you're going to knock michael jackson from the one spot you know that just doesn't happen and then you know it's just something that especially when it's when it is word of mouth when it is like I remember distinctly, I think I first got the CD. Uh, a kid my dad worked with got it, who was a, a metal fan, and was like, "This is terrible. You think your son, you know, you know, your son like smells like Teen Spirit? You know, does he want this CD?" And that's how I got this. My first copy of the CD was a hand me down because of, you know, seventeen, eighteen year old kid that was working with my dad or a 20 year old guy or whatever didn't like it because you know it wasn't heavy enough or it wasn't you know didn't speak to him as a metal guy that's interesting <laughs> yeah but and it, you know and it, it makes sense that it would be exposed that way because it was like i said they're on the cover you know it's sebastian bach and i'm making it up and i'm assuming you know i remember nirvana being on the cover of like circus and all that kind of stuff um and then you know it's kind of that shifting of a guard if you or changing of a guard rather if you will. Well, if you, uh, I mean, we can go track by track or if you can just point out ones that, you know, you want to speak about. I think we can kind of do, just go around if you don't mind. It's the, the Borowski style. Yeah. And all these thoughts, like I've already talked about pissings and a plane and, and I'm, what I'm trying to do and, and please cut this, what I'm trying to do is avoid the rehash, everything that's already been said about it. To touch on those first, you know, five six tracks though they were they were all over the place on mtv and they did uh they they kind of did make some uh radio airplay eventually you know once they got into the top 40 but smells like teen spirit in bloom come as you are lithium those those four at least i know really kind of you know put them forward in bloom is still one of my favorite videos oh yeah i mean that that video is just fantastic Uh, that's 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 the one that kind of made me think. Okay, the, these guys are clever. 
This isn't just an average band. These guys are clever. Well, and I think it speaks to the humor of the band too, which often gets overlooked. You know, I, you know, I keep going back on it, but I think that's one of the reasons that I, you know, love them so much is just because it has all of those things. It's anger, it's rebellion, it's acceptance, it's conflicting feelings. It's, but it's, there's funny in there. And some of it's dark humor. Some of it's just, you know, like I said, some of it's just plain, this is funny. Um, but then you, you've got that video, you know, the tearing down the. For, for those out there that haven't seen it, it's they're kind of like on an Ed Sullivan style show with slicked hair and in, you know, snappy outfits. Clearly miming their their instruments and lip. Exactly. You know, doing what there's what they're told, what they're supposed to do. And then it cuts to them trashing the stage and it flips back and forth throughout the video. And it's it's pretty great. Yeah. Well, and they, they've got the screaming girls, you know, like the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Yeah. Girls are going crazy and they're, they've got bad wigs on. Well, <laughs> it's just great stuff. Um, I will say this is a, a debate that I've had before. It's side one, track one smells like teen spirits got to be up there with the best of the best. I can agree with that. It's, it's a hell of an opener. It really is. Back in black on back in black. Maybe well, you know, welcome to the jungle on appetite, but side one, track one on a way to open a record. I mean, come on. That just hits you in the face. You're in. It does. Yeah. I know I, I completely agree. I mean, yeah, I, I could put it on that level with uh with appetite as far as how the how the album opens. It hit it's got everything you need. I mean, it is. It's, it might be hacky to say, you know, the biggest song from the band, you know, the biggest song from the biggest band, but it really does kind of encapsulate the band as a whole, the whole loud, loud, quiet, loud dynamic, sort of the inclusiveness, you know, he's talking about the tribe and the, the lyrics might mean everything, might mean nothing, might just be rhyming words. Um, we could read into them more than we want to. If, you know, if we want to, we could throw them away. We could just, but there's the, the melody there the the heaviness of it grohl's drumming obviously goes without saying but this is the if this is the first song and this was the first song many people heard after bleach so even if you like bleach this is such a leap up and bleach is some great songs so if for your listeners out there if you haven't listened to bleach and you like nirvana do yourself a favor um but this is just something that hits you over the head and like oh this is this is a record to be this is a band and a record that needs to be reckoned with. I did see a, a little reel once where Dave Grohl was talking that he, he ripped that drum beat from the Gap Band. Without a doubt. Yeah. Straight lift. Uh, he's proud of, proud of it. And uh, whoever the drummer of the Gap Band is, they, they've spoken. They'd be like, man, you, well done. That's what's great about it, too. I mean, everyone, there's, I remember the debate, and I think it's probably still raging somewhere, where it's the more than a feeling guitar riff. Do, 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 do. Holy shit, you're right. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, we, that's just good stuff, you know? <laughs> it was never like we're standing on the shoulder of, you know, or we're ripping people off to be a sum of a whole, but that was always the detractors, or I would just remember those and like fiercely, de you know, defending Nirvana. And you're like, oh, wait, they were in on it, you know? Are they? Well, then, then come as you are is a straight ripoff of, uh, 80s by the killing joke yeah yeah exactly i i read that and i had to go to youtube and find that song and yeah there's yeah there's no uh, ambiguity there. It's just a, a straight ripoff. Whatsoever. And again, I think it, you know, and this is defending a band that doesn't need, you know, defense or doesn't need my voice in it, but I, I think it's it's an homage to those things, to the underground, I think, and, and the melting pot of everything. And it's, I don't, you know, I don't think Come As You Are, I don't think Cobain's sitting down like, oh, I'm going to take this guitar riff and we're going to be the biggest fucking band in the world, you know? You know, it, it wasn't sort of 
stealing from here and here and then being, I think it was just, this is what these guys were listening to. Yeah. I think there's, there's a big, big difference between a, a blatant ripoff for, you know, to steal versus these are your influences. And these, this is what's in, you know, the back of your subconscious as, as what you, what you know, and what you play. Well, I mean, hell, you know, Apple doesn't invent anything either. You know, they just take other people's ideas and make them better. Yeah. There's a whole, there's a whole rant about people getting rich off of other people's ideas and names and likeness. So we can go on. It's the American way. <laughs> Cause I invented the music podcast, you know? Oh, exactly. Yes. yes. Yeah. Elon Musk invented Tesla. I am the first person to ever want to do a music podcast about people talking about an album. Well, and believe me, I'm the first guy to ever talk about Nirvana's Nevermind. <laughs> all, we are all standing on the shoulders of giants. There we go. So, for all you music fanatics out there, here's a great podcast to add to your must-listen list. Nakedly Examined Music is a podcast about songs and songwriting. In each episode, Mark Litzenmeyer speaks with a songwriter about three of their songs, which you get to hear in full. Nakedly Examined Music explores what motivates creative decisions at every step of a song's creation, from the initial idea to the final recording. It also provides a picture of how a songwriter's work has changed over the course of their career. This is the ideal context for introducing you to new music, and you're going to come away from the podcast with many new favorite songs. You're also going to learn about legendary artists, and you'll get filled in on scenes and genres that you always felt like you should know more about. You may come away a better listener and a more inspired creator. Start listening today wherever you listen to your podcast. The link in the show notes or find the show at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. I know I keep repeating myself, but I think it's that thing of, and maybe it's just because I, I've had to, it's been a part of my life for 32 years now, or 31 years now. And it took a long time. I mean, when he, when he dies, when he kills himself, I was like 14. And so that was a hard, I remember it, it hit like a ton of bricks and it's still for me, like it still hurts. And I never met the guy. I don't know him at all, you know, celebrity death or whatever you say, but at the time it meant a lot to me. Um, and so for a long time I did what everybody else did. I was reading the lyrics. I was, you know, especially at that age, getting into it. And, oh, man, he was telling us the whole time. And, you know, I swear I don't have a gun. What did he mean? And all this kind of stuff. And reading everything I could about it and, you know, blah, blah, what everybody else does. But then as you get older and you're, you, you just start to listen to it and you go back and put yourself into when it was recorded. And this is a 24-year-old kid who isn't that guy yet. He's not the most famous person in the world and the most famous band in the world. He doesn't have this debilitating drug addiction. He, he can walk around the street. Nobody knows who the fuck he is. Half the world doesn't even know he exists. The same with anyone in that genre of music. This isn't, you know, if you're wearing a Sonic Youth shirt, there's five people that know, you know, especially in Spring Valley. I remember, you know, people would be like, oh, you know, you listen to this music. Cool. You know, there was those folks. But it wasn't, the quarterback didn't have a Nirvana t-shirt on. You know what I mean? Not saying we're any different, but it just wasn't a part of the zeitgeist like it would become a few months after it's released. And so I think looking back on it then, it, it's, you strip all that away. This isn't, like I said, this isn't Nirvana recording a record. This is really two high school friends, Kurt and Chris, with a new drummer who had a pretty good first record that got a lot of, um, for lack of a better term, buzz because of singles like Love Buzz and About a Girl and some of their songs that were like, oh, this is good shit. This is good music. Uh, and maybe the second record is, is you know, this is a band worth investing in if you're, you know, the Geffen Company. Maybe they can tour with Sonic Youth and sell a few records. And that's exactly what they did. And then, holy shit, it takes on a life of its own. Um, I remember reading it might in uh, Michael Azred's book, Come As You Are, but they were saying the record wasn't selling, you know, like it was until after Christmas. So it was like everyone got a Michael Bolton CD for Christmas, a Garth Brooks or Madonna CD for Christmas. And then our generation, you know, they, they went and returned it and got Nevermind. And then all of a sudden, you know, it spiked, you know, and went up. And whether that's true or not, I just always thought it was a, 
you know, a nice little antidote of sort of what was going on at the time, that, that changing of the guard of, if you will. And, you know, and I also had to go back to when I was, when I'm thinking about this record is because like I said, it, it wasn't, it wasn't the, the first record that was my music. And I know a lot of people would, will say, you know, their first favorite record is that first one that they could point to that wasn't their parents record or something like that. For me, that record really was Metallica's Injustice for All, where I had it, I had it in my headphones. I was scared to let my parents hear it, you know. It was something I knew they weren't going to like or understand. My parents liked Nirvana. My dad requested that I bring the tape into the, the minivan because it was, you know, because it was melody and poppy and heavy or whatever. And uh, granted, he was more the demo for this than I was at the time. You know, he's 20 or he's in his early 30s, so maybe a little bit older when this yeah. comes out. But to me, I think it was the first thing that, again, I, I think it was the first thing that opened up a world that I didn't know existed. So you're seeing Cobain, you know, he's talking about all these other bands and he's wearing um, the t-shirts and they're name dropping and they're bringing girl groups with them, you know, the girl group, but they're bringing rock bands that aren't on MTV because they don't fit the aesthetic. You know, they're pointing out, say like L7 and Seven Year Bitch and, and all these other bands that aren't getting airplay. And I'm going back and I'm finding the Melvins and I'm finding these bands that were influenced. And, you know, just because you saw somebody, you know, he wore a T-shirt on the cover of Rolling Stone. And now I'm, you know, reading the, the liner notes of who he's thanking or who he's shouting out. And, oh, I've got to find this band and I've got to find this band. And I think to me, it was that, that first record that really set, a, set me it was the tide that rose all boats, if you will. It was the thing that opened me up to everything. And then it's right after this, it's it's 10. It's all those bands that come, you know, come with it. It'll sound weird, but it, it it's a timeless record to me where it sounds like this could be recorded yesterday. And I still think it's a hit record. It could have been, you know, if it was released today, obviously it'll be on Pitchfork and they'd probably give it a 4.0 because, <laughs> you know, doesn't have enough sense and all that kind of stuff but to me it's just a timeless record it's you know as kurt says it's always been and always will until the end i think it's just one of those things that has stood the test of time continues to stand the test of time and i don't think it's because of the for lack of a better term the hype and the mythology that's around it yeah i still think you know if cobain lives and they're putting out bad records but if they go the route of say pearl jam and people are like oh they were they were only good for 10 and who listens to dad rock yeah you probably would have that i'd love to live in a world where i was you know on the 15th nirvana record and they were saying it's dad rock um so there is that thing where you know you're only 20 once and that was what they were feeling then but i i do think it's timeless and i think it and i think a lot of it has to do with the melody of it the songwriting i think is just superb the mixing on it um the thing i keep going back to is how underrated the bass sounds like nova Selich's bass parts the way that it played up a little bit in the mix very an homage to that 70s style uh recording well, like a, a lounge act had a has a good like bass intro oh that jumped out at me yeah absolutely absolutely And the thing that, you know, a lot of bands had it, um, you know, I think you could probably say that's the Pixies influence. Their bass is very, okay. Deal's bass is very, Kim Deal's bass is very turned up in the mix. Obviously the way that, that Grohl and Nova Selich play off each other, but it all, again, it's a broken record, but it all comes down to, I think, Cobain and his songwriting and his sense of melody, his sense of putting things together. Well, and, and to touch on something you've, mentioned quite a bit but the this album was made before they were famous yes so this is them having fun without yeah. you could you could tell on the on the song the, the songwriting and the playing that they're enjoying themselves they just it, it feels that way and i think that's why I, I definitely like this a lot better than in utero but there's there, there is just a lot of joy in the way they're playing and i think you, it comes across in the music a lot i agree i will say 
what I love about in utero, and this goes back to the humor, is so now they're recording in utero. They're they're the biggest band in the world. You know, they're everything that the myth has become. Awesome. Yeah, they're on the cover of Time magazine. They can't go anywhere. They're you know, and the record starts off with teenage angst has paid off well. Now I'm bored and old. From serve the Children. that's the first of your major you know your major label follow up your multi platinum record and I think that just goes back to Cobain's humor and what often gets overlooked and if you read you know Dave Grohl and those guys you know and the experts of people that knew him I think that often gets overlooked by the tragic ending and we're you know the tortured artist and all those things where you're going to read back what you will on it and a lot of people do and a lot of people did. Yeah, like you said, this is this is three guys having fun. And this could have been their their one shot, their last record, their and uh Dave Grohl's um documentary um Sound City. So this is recorded in Sound City where Tom Petty did Damn the Torpedoes and Fleetwood Mac recorded and Rick Springfield and Okay. Highly recommend the documentary if you haven't seen it. But Grohl talks about that the place is nearing its end because you know, no one's making those types of records in the studio anymore. Nirvana comes in and they have a modest budget and they record there. Like, again, it's three guys in a room. Um, there's a famous where something in the way, the last track, they couldn't get it right. Um, Butch Vig couldn't get it right in the studio. So that's Cobain in the beginning, him strumming his guitar. He's laying down in front of the council, which turns off all the fans. He's just laying down, strumming the guitar, essentially quietly singing it, trying to work it out, and Butch is recording it. And that's what you hear on the final track. I'm underneath the bridge, top is from a leak, and the animals are trapped. You know, obviously everything else is mixed in. But again, I, I think it's just that, so like you said, they're having fun or they're making a record. They're not making the the voice of a generation record. They're not making Back in Black. They're not, they're making Nevermind. Um, it, it becomes capital Nevermind, you know, bold, underlined, this record after the fact. So the version I have has a, a 13th track, Endless Nameless. Was that on the original or was that a bonus? That was a hidden track on the original. So I think something in the way is something like 18 minutes long. Oh, uh, okay. 10 minutes. Remember when in the 90s? The, the good old days. Yeah. Right? yeah. And what I think that was was just a sound collage of them. Oh, it was terrible. Uh, well, but it's not. It, yeah, I, and that's coming from a guy that likes to listen to Pistachio Medley from the Pumpkins. Uh yeah, endless and name was I, I I say it's terrible, but I think it's supposed to be. It's like, like you said, it was them just it was uh I, I had to read about it because I was so curious, like what yeah. what is this? Uh, but they were they were starting to record lithium and it went south. And so then they started just doing whatever came to mind. And this goes back to what I was saying before, they were having fun with it. You know, it's, it wasn't like a Crosby, Stills and Nash sort of jam session. It, this, was, this was a Nirvana jam session, and that's what it's going to sound like. Well, and quite honestly, they're just fucking around there, but, or whatever, but it's the DNA of Nirvana, right? Yeah. Loud uh, screaming, uh, the quiet interlude with the bait. So it's always there. It's just in their DNA, Steve. That's just who they are as a band. As a yeah. Well, so when I say it's terrible, it's terrible in a good way. <laughs> good, it's good. Terrible in a good way. Well, it's not the lead single. Yeah. <laughs> and I and I will have to mention though, something in the way did fit very nicely in that Batman trip. Oh yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's so for for millions of new people to be like, what band is that? Yeah. Well. 
And it's it's weird to me, and maybe you know it's, it's that thing of getting older, but it has to be the same way where you know when we were walking around in the nineties with like Led Zeppelin t shirts on, what our parents were like, what you know must have thought. Where now, true, you know, there's in my daughter's third grade class, there's kids with the smiley face t shirt on. They don't know Nirvana. They don't listen. I doubt their parents listen to you know to Nirvana, but it's at Target next to the, you know, it's in their spring line and whatever, you know, and there's the argument, is that terrible? Is it great? Is it whatever? It's, you know, something in the way it charts for the first time in 30 years because it's in a trade. Oh, it charted. I believe it really. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Even, even having a, re- a reconnaissance there, I mean, it, or a resurgent as the last track of the, the record, um, it's wild. It, it does make me a little sad, though, when our local Target here, uh, you can get the, they have a display up and it's been up there for weeks with a special edition Target only vinyl of Nevermind, you know, and next to their t-shirt display of you can get these t-shirts too. It's just like all right there in a nice bubbly Target display. Yeah. Makes me, makes me cringe just a little bit. You know what? I, and I did the same thing and I, and I do, and it sucks where the, a lot of, you know, well, what I think about is who I was and now the world is a completely different place. So I know it's, it's apples. Oh yes. Gr- it's apples to hand grenades, you know, what my comparison, but what I think about is the kid who is intrigued by the cover or the smiley face who hasn't heard it, who's, you know, only been listening to say TikTok videos or the top 40 with their parents or whatever. And then for some reason puts this record on and it speaks to them, you know, in a way we were a complete 180 from where we were 31 years ago, especially living in a small town where you were only going to hear it because like we were talking about MTV or somebody older turned you on to, to where now there's so much white noise. There's so much, there's access to everything that it almost it's almost back to where it was. And because you have such a short lifespan, you know, Beyonce puts up a record today. It's already been talked to death. If I don't hear it till Friday, everyone's done talking about it because the next single came, you know, or the next record came. Right. You know, I fight with that too, but at the same time, if it turns somebody on to Nirvana who goes, you know, and changes their world in a way that it did mine and countless of other people, you know, and I hope it does. I hope they're that with their recent resurges through through whatever means. Uh, I hope so. There are some people out there that discover this album for the first time because there isn't anything, to my knowledge, right now that's new that sounds anything like. Well, and it goes back to you saw it with you know you just talked you know with Masters of Puppets with uh, with your episode with Rick. Metallica ended their Lollapalooza set with the Stranger Things in the background. And Masters of Puppets, that's a song that's 40 years old, you know, just about or whatever. And now there's new kids, new fans of Metallica and, or the Masters of Puppet record because of yeah. things, you know, or the Kate Bush phenomenon, all that kind of stuff. So good music will find a way. I posted about this last year or earlier this year with uh, due credit to Metallica and Kate Bush, but there is an excellent journey recut of separate ways in separate in stranger things that doesn't get enough attention all right it was beautiful beautiful scene you know when we would talk about journey in the nevermind episode i I was wondering how we could steer it there and i'm glad we did straight line from skid row you know it is it really is (laughs) are there any other tracks you want to touch on before we move forward man it's it's really it's like talking about your favorite kids I love them all. Drain You is one of my favorite songs. I think just, again, the dynamics of it, the way he's, just his vocal performance on the song, I think is just top-notch. I like the lyrics of that one. I just thought they were, say, tongue-in-cheek funny. It is my duty to drain you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Chew your meat for you. Pass it back. Yeah. Yeah. Lounge Act, I think, is 
talked about it a little um a little bit but that is one of my that is also a great song And a lot of people, like I said, going back on it, people were talking about, is it, is it addiction? Is it, you know, I've got this friend you see who makes me feel and I want it more. Um, than I could steal. I don't think that's what it's about. I, I think it's more about it's, uh, I took it as a breakup song. Yeah. It's, it's more about a relationship. Um, uh, you know, I've got to, you know, I'll keep fighting jealousy. I can still smell around you, smell her on you. Um, those types of things. That's what it's about. There's just so much to unpack and still, like I said, 31 years later, still listening to it and hearing different lyrics or lyrics in a different way. Um, been listening to it with my kids and they're like, oh, that was funny. Or what's he say there? And you're like, oh, that's what he's saying or that's what he means. I will recommend anyone out there, though, that if they want to hear the, the stuff that is not forced down on you, you know, the back half of this album is pretty excellent. Well, and I think that's what makes Nirvana great is it's not just the single or the, in this, in case of this record, the singles. And if all you know about Nirvana is, you know, smells like teen spirit, um, in bloom, come as you are lithium or going on to the next record, um, hard shaped box and all apologies, or even the, the, um, the unplugged. unplugged record, go back and listen to it's it's funny to say the deep tracks they put out three records um <laughs> but if you like nirvana go back or if you're intrigued by what you hear and you're not familiar with them go back and listen to bleach go back and listen to the songs that aren't state quote-unquote staples or listen to them again in context or for the hundredth time or the first time just because i think this is a band worthy of immersion and exploration it's a band that again has shaped me in ways you know in my musical tastes in ways and, and it's a band that has a little bit to offer for everyone whether you're a beatles fan or whether you're a metallica fan or, or everything in between i think it's in these records because that's who these guys are that's who they were you know you can see it you know when Grohl goes on and what he does in the Foo fighters and and that stuff and actually i had a younger colleague said they never gave nirvana a try because they didn't like the Foo fighters and so if anyone out there is <laughs> on the fence with that nirvana and the foo fighters have nothing in common except for their drummer and maybe the dna that runs through his his songwriting but this is a completely different animal um so if if you're avoiding nirvana because of your opinion on the foo fighters two completely different bands stop that now yes i enjoy both bands i'm a big fan of the foo fighters but yeah two two completely different that just popped into my head because i remember a younger it was about three or four years ago and, uh, oh, I had Nirvana on in my headphones. He's like, what are you listening to? And I, whatever Nirvana song. And he was like, ah, I never didn't give him a chance. I, I can't stand the Foo Fighters. And I was like, oh man, that would be the way in for people. But, uh, I'm an old guy. So never mind. You know, you brought that to the table today. What albums, uh, would be a short list for you? Oh, Steve, unreal. Um, there's so many. I keep going back and forth on all of these. And every time you ask me, like I said, I think in the last episode, every time you ask me, I go back and I'm like, oh, I forgot to say this and I forgot to say that. What's on your short list is one of my favorite questions. I know. It boggles everyone when you put them on the spot. I've got my record collection down here in front of me and I, I don't know what I would talk about. Um, well, you've already mentioned Injustice for All and Appetite during the show here. Injustice was good for me. The replacements, let it be, was is on my short list of ones that I would um, was going to talk about. Yeah, I don't know. We'd have to cut this. If you had to recommend a Pixies album for for someone to to as an intro, because that's one that's a band that's been mentioned on several shows, several episodes, uh, but I don't know their catalog, and I'd like to kind of explore them a bit. Uh, I would say the two that you need to, to listen to if you don't know anything about them are Doolittle and Surfer Rosa. Okay. You might know Where Is My Mind. The Fight that Club song? Fight Club. Yeah, that's the Pixies. Um, that is my knowledge of the Pixies. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you honestly, if you like Nirvana, you're going to like the Pixies. <laughs> I mean, the way they sound, it's the loud, quiet, loud dynamic. 
there's there's funny there's a there's a lot of shared dna between the bands i think um frank black the songwriter you know the lyricist and the, the singer has very similar um songwriting dna to cobain and that they're the lyrics can mean everything they could mean nothing they're funny they're humorous they're insightful they're dark they're scary they're edgy um they have the pop sensibility um in fact the song on do little called here comes your man is basically like a 60s doo-wop song oh, really m deal sings and it's just a phenomenal song they have their experimental their loud sort of feedback screaming side um again if you if you dig nirvana and you like what nirvana has done and what they've put out especially the nevermind record then do little and surfer rosa are, are worth checking out for sure and they're still putting out albums now the pixies are still going strong their last two or three i should say of their their reunion records are really solid records worth checking out as well cool. all right i will say just a few other things on um nevermind like, like I said, with Nevermind, I was struggling on whether or not to to talk about it because everything had been talked to death. But I think at the end of the day, the biggest thing that gets lost about Nevermind is that it is just a fun, angry, cathartic rock record. It's everything that you want in an album. It has melody. It has tragedy. It has anger. It has alienation. It has acceptance. It has the, you know, come as you are, all are welcome. It doesn't matter. You, this record is for you. This record is for if you're the outcast. This record is for if you're sad or depressed. This record is for if you're happy. It's just one of those records that encapsulates everything that I love about music, everything that I love about songwriting, down to its production and i think what is so unbelievable to me is that yes it is this huge record now but it is the record that deserves the adulation that it's got it deserves the accolades that it's gotten i think it would still to to say the quiet part out loud i still think it would resonate in the accolades even if they were putting out records today and Cobain was still putting out records. I think it is that powerful of a record. I think it stands head and shoulders above other records of the era for good reason. And we've talked about it shares DNA with a lot of those bands and, you know, literal parts of other, other bands catalogs, but it is that record that does it so well. I will say it's that once in a generation talent of Cobain, of Novoselic, and of Grohl, those three guys coming together to make this record. They they did In Utero, which I'll stand behind as well. I love that record. I don't think there's a bad Nirvana song or record. You can see how this record stands up and just the unbelievable songwriting if you watch The Unplugged, if you've only heard that record and heard these songs in that setting, stripped down to the bare bones, to their DNA, you can hear how powerful they are without the guitars, without the drums kicking you in the head, because that's how strong of a songwriter they are. That's how strong the DNA of these songs are. And I think that speaks, and that's a testament to the power of this band and why this band and this record are important, continue to be important, and hopefully generations continue to discover and listen and sit with this record because it's worthy of that. Uh, that's uh, it's very well put. Well said. There were so many things, Steve, that I wanted to talk about. I'm like, I've got these notes about everything. And it's just, I, I was doing what I... You were on a roll. I wasn't going to interrupt you. I thank you. I thank you for that. I was hopefully, hopefully it was something you can use. Before we wrap this up, uh, anything you want to tell our listeners of, if you're working on something, if they, where they can find you or anything you would like to pitch? Nothing I would like to pitch. Um, support Music Rewind. Support your local podcaster. I think I've said it before on these episodes, but if you, every episode is worth hearing. If you think, if you don't know an album or you think you don't like an album, hear it again through somebody else's eyes. Hear it again through the lens that they're bringing to you. 
go back and rediscover it, go back and discover it, hear it again for the thousandth time or the first time, but with somebody else's perspective in mind. I've done that and fallen in love with records or, or listened, found nuggets of things and records that I had written off just because they weren't what I thought I would like or didn't like at first. Hearing them, you know, at, with somebody else's insight and connecting in a way that somebody else did is, is pretty damn enjoyable to a music nerd like myself and like hopefully everyone who's listening to this to this podcast i appreciate that and and what's one of the joys that i get out of this podcast is is hearing these albums through someone else's eyes which makes no sense when you say it out loud but the uh no, that, no. that's how i put it man i love it <laughs> it, is. it is but but it's it's interesting i mean it's it's a lot of a lot of off the wall albums have been brought up and a lot of different ones of different genres, different ways they were recorded, different levels of success. But when you put it through the eyes of the person that, you know, it was a life changing album for them, it, it adds to the uh, overall enjoyment of the album for me. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's what's cool. And that's what's cool about me and a music fan, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I still hope to discover. You know, when you ask what my favorite record is or what other records are shortlist, it's not because I don't have a list because there's so many. And since the last time we talked, there's like other records that I love just as much, you know, or, or went back, you know, new stuff that came out that I'm loving or so it, it's, it's very, that's the great thing about being a music fan, especially in this day and age where everything is available and timeless and, and, you know. If you want to discover this band, um, if you only like one song or one record, that's fantastic. It's, you know, spend time with it and discover something. All right. Well, thanks for your time today, Dan. It's a pleasure to sit and talk with you about Nirvana's Nevermind. Thanks for having me on, Steve. I really appreciate it. I've read every book and seen every documentary, and I'm trying to, was just trying to bring something to it that wasn't there. And I, I think that's what I kept hitting on was just the, the enjoyment of it and what it was and what it is, you know. Well said. I'd like to thank you for listening to Music Rewind, a podcast from the Sidereal Media Group. If you enjoyed today's episode, there are many ways to help the show, such as our Patreon or affiliate links in the show notes. The easiest way, though, is to give the show a rating or comment wherever you listen. We really do appreciate it. Thank you again, and as I always say, listen to the full album. Until next time. A podcast from the Sidereal Media Group. Back to you, anchors.